Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Bubbs. He has been working with elite and professional athletes, busy executives, and motivated individuals aiming to improve their health for almost two decades, using an evidence-based approach to nutrition, fitness, and lifestyle. Mark is Director of Performance Nutrition for Canada Basketball and Consultant Performance Nutritionist for a wide variety of professional and Olympic athletes and teams. He is also the host of the Performance Nutrition Podcast and the author of Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Hey, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. Phil and I are really excited to dive into a bunch of fun topics with you. Uh, You wear a lot of professional hats. Um, Tell us a little bit about um, Team Canada and uh, the, the nutrition performance coaching that you do for them. Yeah, I mean it's been a it's been a great ride working for Canada basketball. I mean it's been uh, about ten years now, and it's you know growing up having played basketball in grade school and high school, I used to watch guys like Rowan Barrett, who's our, our president, and of course Steve Nash at Santa Clara, and it's been uh, it's been great to be able to support. And so now being there this long, we've got our young kids who've been through the system, and so you know kids like R.J. Barrett who used to be in the cadet teams, the 15 year olds and now playing for the Knicks. And so, yeah, we, I mean, there's two sides of the coin there really. One is layering in those foundations for younger athletes when you're 13, 14, 15. And the beauty of that, of course, is you've got such a long runway, you know, I'm sure like, like building mental performance and mindset skills and you've got a long runway, you can really take your time and layer things in so that they become second nature. And then, you know, we've got athletes that are, a lot of young NBA players, but a lot of like any other athletes, some of them, it's only when the injuries crop up or maybe when we get towards the tail end of the career that all of a sudden start to realize, Hey, this nutrition thing, I think is going to be pretty important. And so, you know, at the moment we're getting ready for the qualifications for, uh, for the world cup 2023 and uh, fingers crossed the Olympics 2024 comes around quicker, quicker than you think. Yeah. When you get a, 13, 14, 15-year-old like R.J. Barrett or Andrew Wiggins or someone like that coming in or maybe Jamal Murray. On the mental side, what progression do you see um, with their mindset and their mental skills between you know, th- this precocious, talented, and physically gifted teenager and then this difference-making NBA and international player a few years later? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, we've got a great team. Uh, Dr. Peter Jensen's the mental performance lead uh, with Canada basketball. and But 
you know, for me, just seeing how environment impacts things. So even as a dad, three young kids, we were talking beforehand and, and seeing how young athletes are influenced by their environments naturally. But it really starts to hit home when you see an athlete go from high school to college and all of a sudden the palate expands a little bit. But, you know, that university diet still a little bit more processed than most of us at the performance level would like. And when you see them make the jump to the you know, those who can up to the NBA or to the professional ranks. And now all of a sudden you're sitting around a table with grown men. Again, all these things that we've been trying to layer in over time and, you know, it, it moves, it progresses, but it really shoots up when all of a sudden everyone around you is eating, you know, broccoli and rocket or this protein or that protein. And so that really hit home for me early on with this idea of how can we create some of these environments where the right decisions are just, more easy right it's just it becomes more of the default and i think you know even for the rest of us in our day-to-day -day life trying to perform at work or at home that's kind of the name of the game too of just how do we make the better choices more of the defaults and try to limit you know a bit like in golf try to limit those bad shots so you're not making triple bogey or worse on some of those holes you're just having you know a little bit of a hiccup on a day or two and so that idea of environment's really something that's I've been amazed by, and even when you see it on obviously on the physical training side, the skill development, just how quickly all that um, improves when you're in an environment with with professionals or with elite performers. That's great. I uh, one of the first NFL guys I worked with, and so this was quite some time ago. Uh, I he went from you know good to really really good, if not great. And I said, what was one of the big things that helped with that? And he said, well, when I got into the league, you know, and again, this was 15 years ago, he yeah. said, my three basic food groups were McDonald's, <laughs> Burger King, and like Taco Bell, something like that. Yeah. And yeah. he said, man, making nutrition uh, a priority uh, has made all the difference in terms of just how I feel about myself, you know, uh, uh, and how well I perform. And he said, you know, if I want to stay in the league and be the best I can be, and who doesn't uh, mm -hmm. want to be those things, then you know, I really need to be an all-star in terms of my nutrition. And so I thought that was really cool. Um, uh, he was a little bit ahead of his time in some ways, but um, yeah. it still seems like that there's still room for improvement for almost every athlete and almost every person on this topic. Yeah, it's an interesting one in the sense that we've, we've come a long way from 20 years ago when, you know, there wasn't even a sport dietitian or I remember finishing up my university degree and, and going into shadow some of the medical clinics and asking them, you know, what about if we change the diet or get some exercise going and sort of look at you thinking, well, you know, I don't know how much that's going to really move the needle in some of these metabolic conditions. And here we are 20 years later, and we know that nutrition and exercise, we see the recommendations even on the medical side being to, to, to use those important tools. And so, yeah, in pro sport, I mean, now we've got these facilities where they're trying to get the athletes to eat the breakfast and the lunch there. We've got more players with chefs, which is tremendous. And you see the natural evolution now of not only just having the chef, but the chef starting to work with the diet, sport dietitian or performance nutritionist to say, well, actually, how much fuel do we need to get in? You know, like how many carbohydrates or how much energy or how much protein? Because it's great to enjoy the food you're eating, but over the course of you know, 82 game season or in baseball, a crazy 162 games. I mean, it really starts to add up. And when you look at some of these, you know, injury risk. So if we combine, you know, lack of sleep with under fueling, that's a pretty good recipe for being more susceptible for an injury. And, and those are 
you know, pretty controllable factors when you zoom out to 30,000 feet and think, okay, how to, you know, obviously there's travel and we're going to miss it here and there, but there's a lot of ways around that. And I think that's where you see the, obviously sleep's being mined, nutrition's being mined. And of course, you know, on the mental side of things, it's obviously, as you know, been around for a while, but even now it seems like they're really doubling down on and probably to do with, I mean, even just the social media and the, all the different inputs influencing them, the mental performance side, but you really see people, uh, staffs doubling down on that. And as a nutritionist, for me, it's interesting because the two just mesh so well together. I mean, a lot of the things we're trying to build from a nutrition standpoint, marry up with, with building in mindset skills. And so it's really a cool way, especially when for younger athletes or I mean, anybody really, but when you have that runway to start layering those things in, because then these things just become more automatic rather than having to really push to do them. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that kind of removal of randomness slash elevating, as you said, your kind of default baseline or your go-to habits around nutrition rather than just leaving things to chance and circumstance. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think COVID-19 has taught us a lot about that. We know that, environment triggers a lot of these cues and we're probably more like Pavlov's dog than we realize. So that, you know, that end of the evening, you're sitting on the couch, Netflix is on, you have a glass of red wine. And I can't tell you how many clients I have who maybe drank very little or never in the weekdays that by the end of the lockdown, we're drinking wine every single night. And it becomes that pattern of you're relaxing. We got the, whether it's a bowl of ice cream or some chocolate or some wine, we're watching television. And it's enjoyable, but now all of a sudden, when we go back to that same room, that same environment, we want that same stimulus. And this is where it's the loops that we get in that actually cause, you know, it's not the fact that we had a snack or a glass of wine one night, it's the fact that that becomes the regular pattern. And the the times of the day that I like to focus on, it doesn't matter if it's an Olympian or a client executive, start of the day and end of the day. Like those are the two areas and particularly now what we call late eating. I mean, over 40% of all the calories we consume come after 6 p.m. And we know that the later we eat, it interferes with sleep quality. It can worsen glucose control the next morning. I mean, these are things that it's just becoming the, the sort of societal norm to be eating later. And so most of us, if we can operate by those simple heuristics of let's get off to a good start in the morning with the right breakfast and try to cut out some of that mindless snacking and in the evening it's easier said than done but we've got to find some other ways to be able to you know move away from that mindless snacking or those cues and it's amazing how just changing the environment you know go read a book in another room go for a walk take a warm bath now all of a sudden that same drive to want to have you know that snack or that glass of wine and you know i'm a realist i don't want to take away all everybody's vices you know you could enjoy the weekends but if we do well monday to friday it's amazing how the weekends aren't the end of the world you know everyone's always worried even athletes that they're going to derail all their progress with one bad night or a, a bad weekend but you know if we're doing well monday to friday we're going to make a lot of progress at the end of the year yeah i like that idea of bookending um jim one of the tips you shared with me pretty early on was kind of recapping um, the day on a positive note. So to ask yourself each evening, how, how was I a champion today? And then to set intention for the next day, how am I going to be a champion tomorrow? And then to build on that, maybe a gratitude practice where you 
write down or verbalize three things or, you know, one person and one event that you are grateful for, you know, just spend a couple of minutes. What are your thoughts on what, what Mark just said in terms of starting and ending the day well and um, trying to trying to kind of set a good pattern, you know, kind of an off on-ramp and off-ramp every day from a mental perspective? Yeah, it's a great reminder for all of us, um, you know, uh, you know, in order to win the day, you kind of have to win the morning. And then uh, usually, you know, no one binges during lunch. You know? So it's usually at night when our psychological defenses are down, we're tired, we're, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, feeling a little bit stressed out. Um, and then, like you said, I really like the whole thing about we get in these patterns, we're creatures of habit. And so mm-hmm. we start, you know, maybe having that glass of wine, or maybe two, uh, or eating a certain, you know, whatever, um, and then we just, you know, we're in that same environment. So we, those things kind of pop up in our head and we want to keep doing that activity. And so, uh, you know, kind of in a funny way, when I was doing more counseling work, I would, you know, let's say I was working with a couple, uh, I would ask them about their patterns. When you get in arguments, where are they? You know, and they, well, maybe it's in the kitchen. Okay. You can fight as much as you want, but it needs to be in the hallway. So just to break up those patterns, uh, or do it in the closet, you know, but you can, you know, as much as you want, but you can't fight in the, in the kitchen or in the dining room or living room anymore. But, and, you know, they would laugh about that. And, but, you know, it would kind of wake them up from the autopilot that they were on. Like, yeah, we do get in these kind of bad habits or these patterns. Uh, let's mix it up a little bit. So, um, yeah. I, and I love that for a week too, maybe even bookending, you know, the week is, you know, let's really rock Monday and then get off to a really good start. And then Sunday, let's set the tone. So maybe you're bookending, uh, each week. What do you think of the whole idea of, you know, you, you hear athletes all the time say, I have a cheat meal or a cheat day. What, what are your thoughts on that topic? I, I could see some advantages and maybe even some disadvantages to that language, but also that behavior. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the language is interesting in the fact that depending on the person, it can really have different subconscious contexts. Can I mean, some athletes mm-hmm. really or individuals, the term really doesn't have any weight to it. And for others, whilst they might express the fact that it's okay, you can tell that it's not, we could probably find some better language to uh, to identify that with. And the word cheat's kind of funny as well, because in, you know, in certain sports, I mean, again, basketball, the amount of calories, acceleration, deceleration, you know, 5,000 calories a day, we, we need fuel. And so the hard part, especially in the general population, is that we're going to need these big boluses of fuel. And to get that much fuel in, you often need to eat some more processed food as an athlete to just particularly around training to be able to get that much fuel on board. Whereas in the general population, we're telling people to, you know, eat less frequently or have snack, you know, don't snack between meals. And then for the athletes, let's eat as many meals and snacks as we can. And it's okay if you have more of these uh, simple sugars around training and before, during, after. And so I think just getting the athlete to understand that you know, we, we want to overfuel certain days and some days we maybe want to underfuel. And so as long as the language is serving them, but I think the word cheat always is, doesn't have the, the best connotation in my view, because it should be just built into the, the plan. You know, it's not, it's, it's it, the idea that you're breaking the rules by following X, Y, or Z, it should really be just baked into the plan. And therefore it's an open meal or however people want to express it would be my sort of preference really yeah you touched on a couple of interesting things then mark and one of them is um under fueling among athletes and we know that um there's this been this spate of overuse injuries and particularly fractures among female distance runners and this kind of thing and obviously with you know social media kind of getting people 
goes particularly into the comparison trap early, you know, and this could go in another direction too of self-harm and, you know, diagnosable eating, full-on eating disorders. But even disordered eating would probably be an umbrella over underfueling um, for both male and female athletes. So what are some of the issues there? And if somebody, as you mentioned earlier, is underfueling as well as undersleeping and then having travel stress and maybe having right now to stick a swab up their nose every day or several times a week to see if they're eligible to compete and all the other, you know, stresses that have been placed on athletes the last two years, which are a bit outside the norm. What are some of the consequences there, both, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically, if an athlete, again, male or female, particularly with these stress factors that we hear more and more of in the endurance community among female athletes, what what are some of the other things other than stress fractures or overuse injuries that we can start to see among that athletic population? Well, I mean, we've definitely come a long way in the last decade and a half because it used to be commonplace that in elite endurance sport, particularly with females, you know, losing menstrual function would just be considered part and parcel with being an elite athlete. And finally, we've gotten to a place to show and, you know, what we call relative energy deficiency syndrome, which is we're not getting enough total fuel in. Um, we see that these are not natural consequences of elite training. They're, they're consequences of underfueling. And we see, you know, how mood gets impacted and, you know, joint discomfort and pain and, and blood sugar function, thyroid function, all these markers that, you know, might not always necessarily be way out of balance. But when you look at the constellation of markers, it, it becomes pretty obvious that we're dealing with something that's, that's correctable. And again, it's been great to see the, the amount of research in this area over the last even five years really starting to ramp up and and on the flip side of that social media is we're seeing more empowerment of actually having more athletic body composition for women i mean my wife played university tennis 20 some odd years ago and you know a lot of the girls didn't want to really lift too much because they didn't want to get big and bulky whereas now they know that they're not going to get big and bulky. They're going to get strong and athletic. And so I think that's been a really cool transition in it. Um, I think for the men, this is another area where typically there's been so much science studying men in, in sport, um, sport nutrition and sports medicine, because obviously lack of menses means it's a little bit more straightforward in terms of controllable factors. But of course, we've got 50% of the population playing elite female sport. And so we're only starting to see more information around how hydration status and needs change, you know, pre-menses to post-menses and potentially how training blocks might even be changed or scheduled around some of these things. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely encouraging on, on one side of things. And it's just difficult again for the general population because we need to fuel, particularly with carbohydrate quite a bit for these elite athletes. And it just gets tricky when we're trying to convey to the general population because they're not exercising at quite a high an intensity and it's easy to default to a lot of the low carb eating that we see, which don't get me wrong, can be a great strategy, but it just becomes sort of a, the default heuristic for a lot of people. And that can lead to a lot of the problems with that low, low energy because we're just not getting enough total fuel. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned kind of the, almost a dichotomy, if you will, in your own practice, where you obviously, you know, work, have worked with Team Canada, so elite basketball from juniors all the way up through the men's senior team um, for many years. And then you also work with other teams and other individual athletes, but yet you do also work with general population. And I love that your, um, your Peak 40 newsletter 
as the name might suggest, is that sweet spot between, you know, 30 year olds and 50 year olds. So I'm 40 myself. So when I, you know, I saw that, I was like, all right, he's definitely on to something here. So why is it that that kind of mid career, you know, people often with, you know, with kids, and sometimes the kids are getting up into the teenage years now, why is it such a struggle for folks to fuel correctly and just design a life that will give them peak performance in whatever they do, whether it's a mum or dad, maybe it's, you know, they want to fuel their performance as a high, high performer moving into the latter stage, middle, middle or latter stage of career, while they're still maybe coaching a kid's team or two along the way or running kids hither and yon for activities. What is it about this kind of nexus of forces, if you will, around mm. this middle, middle-aged life uh, kind of inflection point that um that leads a lot of people to, to to start to have challenges that you then try to help them unravel and dig into this and um lean into some strategies for improvement yeah it's a fascinating question and you know my first book peak was the deep dive into athletic performance but it's you know quite long and so we get a lot of performance staff and coaches saying hey what's the short version you know what are the simple rules i can follow to get me to that point and it made me think back of, you know, when I was practicing in Toronto, downtown Toronto, a lot of executives. And I would always think, okay, the, these type A executives are going to have everything on point. They really want to perform well. And certainly some of them did, but some of the highest ranking people, CEOs of banks and partners and law firms struggled to follow even the simplest direction. And you thought to yourself, well, it's not because they're not disciplined and it's not because they lack motivation. And, and so what's, what's the problem? And you realize that they've got a really busy job and they've got a really busy home life and there's only so much bandwidth left to take on board more information. And, you know, the, the trick became, well, how can we, you know, we know we're going to miss a few of the details, but how can we give some simple rules that's going to help to narrow the, narrow the playing field or, you know, a bit like if you go bowling and there's bumper lanes, you know, how do we prevent it from going in the gutter for people? And it gets back to these, this notion around, you know, starting the day well, most people, unfortunately, you know, the typical North American breakfast is, is loaded with energy, right? So cereals and things like that. So we get this big blood sugar rush to start the day. So by mid-morning, we're struggling, right? We're looking, blood sugars come tumbling down, people are a little hypoglycemic. And so you're not thinking as clearly. Now you're reaching for another coffee or something sweet. And having done a lot of corporate talks and places like law firms and banks, I'm always amazed if the snack trolley goes by and it's, it looks like a six-year-old's birthday party. You know, it's nothing but treats and cakes and all sorts of things, which again, as a one-off isn't a problem, but the problem becomes it's, uh, it's there every day. And so every time the person goes to refuel and, and so you get on this energy high and low throughout the day and how do we help people out? Well, simply changing your breakfast. So, you know, to give an example, Breakfast is the meal of the day we get the least amount of protein. So even the typical person who's not even counting anything typically gets at least 20 grams at lunch and dinner. And that's sort of that minimum effective number we're looking for. So how do we get, let's focus on breakfast. How do we get 20 grams of protein? Well, three eggs will get you there, which is 18 grams of protein. So if you combine that with any type of avocado or veggies or a piece of toast, you'll, you know, you'll get there. But this is where we have a lot of these hangovers of what's the first question people say when you tell them to eat more eggs, right? They're worried about the yolks. They're worried about the cholesterol. And so we have to undo a lot of the things that unfortunately we've been told over the years because, you know, an eggs, one of the best protein sources that we have on the planet. 
And that yolk, the yellow part, is loaded with nutrients, right? It's, it's like nature's multivitamin. And so, you know, that's an easy one we typically recommend for people. Um, you know, if, if three eggs feels like too many, we say, hey, have some smoked salmon or some prosciutto with that. And the fast one, the on-the-go suggestion that we give folks is just grab some yogurt, right? You crack the lid, put some berries in there. With the berries, you're getting antioxidants. You're getting pound for pound, maybe the highest fiber food because a cup of berries gives you eight grams of fiber. And the one that always makes me cringe is you'll get a lot of clients coming in who are struggling with maybe bowel frequency, but they're already, their blood pressure is a bit high and maybe their blood sugars. And we recommend them to take brand buds, which, hey, it's an all right, it's a pretty good source of fiber. But for every cup of that, we're getting, you know, 35 grams of sugars and carbohydrate. And so it's, you know, we're already in this, this overfueling mode in general, in the general population, we're bringing on too much fuel, you know, we're not moving a lot because we're sat at our desks. And so, you know, if we can bring that fueling down a little bit and get the protein up is, is, a, is a great place to start. And, you know, a long winded answer to your question, you know, if you can start the day well and end the day well, and just hit your protein through the day, you know, and, and give yourself, you know, eight to 12 weeks just to do that. It's amazing how people realize you know, the weight can start coming off, blood pressure can start coming down, and it's not, it doesn't have to become a full-time job of, of what you're going to eat. Oh, for sure. Jim, in the executive con consulting that you're doing right now, obviously without giving away any names or organizations specifically, what are some of the mindset challenges you're seeing amongst these busy execs, you know, anywhere from their 30s to maybe 50s and 60s? Yeah, we don't definitely don't want uh, – Canada basketball to steal any of my secrets. No, uh, so. you got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to keep these in house, but uh, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. I mean, I just see a lot of travel too, you know, I mean, yeah. obviously that's been curved a little bit, you know, during the whole pandemic, but you know, what do I eat on the road? What do I eat on the run? Um, you know, there's a, seems to be a lot of uncertainty in people's minds, you know, in terms of, you know, whether to skip meals, whether to, um, you know, is that good in terms of, um, you know, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, there's just so much information out there. And that's why, you know, I like to recommend to them is, you know, let the experts be the experts. And so um, otherwise, you're just going to go down this rabbit hole and be more confused than ever. So that's, that's why Phil and I are so excited that you're on today to clear up some of these misconceptions, but any quick thoughts in terms of travel for, you know, executives and, you know, business professionals, Phil and I go on the road a little bit in terms of some of our consulting. Um, and then also too, just, you know, uh, any quick thoughts in terms of, you know, skipping meals and intermittent fasting, that whole topic. I know those are big topics. Absolutely. I mean, if we start with even the fasting, I think it's, it's been a nice movement in the sense that we we had people so afraid of not eating before. You know, if you don't, if you miss a meal, your blood sugars are just going to plummet. And I used to joke around our office used to be on the 36th floor and you'd look down the window, you'd expect to see people just falling over all over the place because they have no more, they haven't eaten in three or four hours. And so it's been nice that people feel a bit liberated to try to go three, four, five, six, seven hours without eating. I think that's, you know, can be an, a nice strategy when you're just busy, maybe you are too busy for lunch, it's okay to keep going through. You know, we don't have to necessarily worry there. And when we look at the research, if, if someone enjoys intermittent fasting, it can be a great dietary strategy. You know, it doesn't have any, you know, additional benefits to just caloric restriction when it comes to weight loss, 
but we know that consistency is the key when it comes to success. So if it fits the person's pattern, tremendous. The one caveat I would suggest for people, if you enjoy intermittent fasting, is that it's easy to just get down to two meals a day when you intermittent fast. And when we look at longevity, protein intake is really key for longevity because it helps to protect muscle mass. It brings on board micronutrients. And so there's a number, 1.2 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. That's that minimum number. If we can just get used to hitting that every day, when we're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, we're going to protect the muscle, prevent that sarcopenia, so that age-related muscle loss and bone loss, which really starts to derail health. And so that's, so with the intermittent fasting, if you add that third meal in, and when I say meal, anytime you eat or drink anything, it's, you know, or like a protein shake that would be considered a meal. And so just having a, maybe a protein shake in there or a little snack, or again, some yogurt to, to have that third meal, because otherwise it's a challenge in two meals. You'd have to have some decent sized protein servings to be able to achieve that. When it comes to, and actually, actually one more thing on the fasting would be, we see a lot of benefit by cutting off the food in the evening. So you don't even have to actually fast in the day. If you just stop eating at say 6 p.m., you almost get all the benefits of fasting. And so sometimes people get so focused on the mornings, which I totally understand. It makes the morning routine real easy. You just have a coffee, you get a lot done, and that can definitely be a great strategy. But just be mindful over time, all of a sudden that person starts eating dinner now at eight, nine, and, the, and now they're eating later in the evening. And that's going to offset a lot of the benefits. So just keep an eye out for that if that starts to creep in. And when it comes to travel, that's definitely an area where, you know, a lot of my clients, athletes, coaches, clients struggle as well because it's, you know, all the rules are sort of set up to, to make the default choice. And Jim, you mentioned, you know, when we're, we sort of let our guard down when we travel a bit as well, people who are busy, that's a moment to decompress a bit on the plane. And somebody comes by with some pretzels and a beer. It's like, okay, you know, why not? But it could be a nice strategy for fasting to just decide, Hey, on the plane, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to hydrate. You know, we are more susceptible to colds and flus on a plane. And interestingly enough, I was at a football medicine conference and apparently if you're sitting in the aisle seat, you're about 80% chance likely of catching a cold or a flu versus in the window seat. So for anybody who's wanting to stay cold and flu free, maybe over this period, not a bad choice to make there, but, um, yeah, you want to stay hydrated on the plane and really we're looking for, for more protein based snacks. And so nuts can be a great option. You know, peanuts get a bit of a bad rap, but they're lots of protein, CoQ10, some great nutrients in there, almonds, cashews, all those are great choices. You, you see more now in some of the, you know, the convenience type places in the airport on the way in, you know, whether it's the jerky or the, the, uh, you know, meat sticks, these kind of things that are higher protein. So those can be nice options as well. And then I think for a lot of people, this idea of, hey, if they want to fast at different times, a really great strategy, if it's really going to be nothing but bad options, is to just say, I'm going to drink some tea or I'll drink some coffee and I'm going to use this as a fast and, you know, get a lot of work done or, or you know, decompress. But the, the trickiest part is just when that trolley comes down the, in, in the airport, you just got to get off that first time, you got to get onto the plan and then you, you're pretty good after that. But it's it's... Not always simple, but not easy sometimes. No, for sure. Um, yeah, Jocko Willink kind of alluded to that when I interviewed him a couple of years back about how he always fasts. He just uses it as an opportunity when him and Leaf are doing their 
their consulting work with businesses and military groups and that kind of thing. But one thing he noted, which you, you would probably agree with, was but make sure you get enough calories later so that you're not then underfueled. So I think his thing is usually if it's international, not to eat breakfast until it's breakfast time in your destination, which that's really a strategy that he probably learned that came out of DARPA, I think, under the Reagan administration in the 80s, right? That you you kind of tap into that food clock because everyone's talking about light exposure when it comes to travel and times to deny yourself light or expose yourself to light and maybe even some preemptive light therapy. But that food clock can be, if I'm not mistaken, a, a good way to kind of tap into that, the body's master clock so it doesn't freak out quite as much maybe with travel. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the the zeitgeibers, the, the things that stimulate the clocks, the ones that are underappreciated, just like you said, exercise, meal timing, caffeine's a great one. And so sometimes I, I get a little frustrated with the airlines because they seem to be turning on and off the lights. Right. And it, especially during COVID. Inappropriate. Yeah. Like, Wait a minute. We're... <laughs> you started to see domestically in the US that there were more violent incidents and probably because when you cage people <laughs> for too long, yeah. they get crazy. Right. But, you know, you start almost start to hear these things every couple of days on the news. So it seemed like during you know, daytime flights, even when the lights would usually be on, you wondered if that was a deliberate directive from the top to try to sedate people more by making it dark basically the whole time. Yeah, and you can, I mean, one of the tips I'll give is oftentimes when you're flying from the East Coast of the US to London, England, is they end up turning the lights on. They, they turn the lights down too early and then they turn the lights on on the other side of it too early. So you can use your iPad or your phone, the blue light there to, to keep you up. Or, you know, if you want to be getting up then that blue light can serve as a proxy. But also on the other end, you can kind of keep your eye mask down a little bit longer because if you're landing at six in the morning or 6.15, you, you don't necessarily want to be up at 4.45. You can get that little extra half an hour or 45 minutes. So definitely the eye mask, you know, using the light on the, on the iPad or the phone can be helpful. And uh, yeah, it's the longer, once you start stretching out past a seven or eight hour flight, it does get, you know, because you can find some time to actually take a nap for, you know, 45 minutes or a full you know, 90 minute, try to get a full sleep cycle in there. That could be really helpful if you're having to go from North America over to, you know, somewhere in Asia, because that's a gets trickier then. Yeah, definitely. Um, what are you seeing in terms of sleep habits among this group of busy mums and dads, busy professionals and and maybe some some overall impact that that's having there. And maybe they just view it as powering through, right? Like, oh, well, if I need to stay up late to prep for this executive briefing tomorrow, no worries. And then, oh, I get up early because I don't want to be late for it. What if I get stuck in traffic? Now they're running on five hours sleep. If someone's doing that consistently, what are some of the, the detriments there? And how can people start correcting that other than the obvious, which is just get more sleep? Yeah, that's the hard one in midlife, right? It's like get more sleep, but the kids don't go to bed till late and then they're up in the night and then you got to get up early and you think, well, geez, where where, where am I going to get this extra sleep from? And if you can carve a little out the weekends and that obviously helps the weekly total, which we often don't think about. We always think of the nightly total. And so that could be a nice way on the weekends to bump up your weekly total. But I think the biggest thing, and this is a recent study out of Bath University, uh, Professor James Betts showed that if you have a really short night's sleep, you know, what's the first thing that we all want to reach for when we get up? Coffee. Right, a nice, strong Lots cup of, of coffee. It. Well, that's actually going to give you quite a pronounced blood sugar response. And so you're going to really get this real peak to start with. So the energy, but followed by a pretty, pretty big trough, which is going to set you up for 
you know, we talked about the wind in the morning. I mean, that's going to make it really difficult. And the cool thing with their study was that if you just eat your breakfast first, if you have some food and then follow it with coffee, you can actually attenuate that, that massive peak. And so, you know, you do have to, it's good to know that one ahead of time because your instinct is going to make you want to grab that caffeine. But, you know, even maybe something like a green tea is a much less of a, you're talking 40 milligrams or so of, of caffeine. And so that can be a gentler way with your breakfast and then have a coffee on the back end. But those are little strategies where if you have that long day after a short sleep, you've got to really start out, you know, with, without uh, sabotaging yourself there in the first few hours from getting up. Yeah, definitely. Jim, when you start working with, you know, you mentioned you have a couple of athletes over in the Winter Olympics now, and obviously they're dealing with the need to just show up and perform every day, but then to peak for a certain event. What are some of the strategies you've been helping those athletes with in this build up to the Winter Olympics? Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, we talk about, you know, talk about nutrition. We talk about being a kid in a candy store in terms of, you know, enjoy the experience, but, you know, maybe have a couple pieces or a couple bites of candy. In other words, you know, have fun, uh, enjoy being part of the games, but, you know, remember first and foremost, what you're there for is to perform your best. And so, a lot of that is the work's already done, you know, the haze in the barn. So let's really be brilliant with the self-care basics. So uh, almost like you put this performance bubble around yourself where, you know, you make sure you get your sleep, you make sure that you, uh, you know, you eat right, you, uh, um, you know, you work a little bit on your visualization and positive self-talk. But yeah, it's really about um, turning the volume down on anything that isn't helpful and turning the volume on, you know, up in terms of what will get you in a great state of mind and mood for your performance. Um, and, you know, that can be difficult in a, in a new environment. And, you know, if you're in the hotel or, you know, you're, you're sort of at mercy in terms of what's available. Um, so the good news is the athletes that I'm working with are, are, are veterans in the sense that they do a lot of traveling. Um, and, so they're not as caught off guard. So I love the, you know, the idea that, you know, they have that wisdom of experience. So that's really helpful. And, and that's the neat thing about nutrition or mindset or any of the topics that we talk about is that um, there really is no finish line. We could all get a little better with all these things. And so that's kind of the fun part. So uh, with them, we talk about whether with nutrition or anything that pops up in terms of their living environment while they're there is you know, try to be a puzzle solver, you know, look at it as kind of a game within a game in terms of, you know, how can I make the best of this situation and look at everything as a challenge. Oh, I love that. Um, Mark, just jump in there real quick. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I was going to ask you, yeah, what do you think about that playing off of that? Yeah, it's great in the sense that even from a nutrition standpoint, clients and athletes have been so used to giving them the plan, you know, this is the plan you're going to follow and all these details. And what we found over the years is that just giving people bite-sized bits to do like, Hey, we're going to tackle the morning, you know, and this is all we're going to do. We're going to keep your focus in this one area. And then they can repeat that and start to build those habits. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things that we try to bite off a little bit too much um, when we're trying to apply things. And if we could just take it in more bite-sized chunks, we can, people can get a lot more success. No, definitely. Speaking, Mark, of being up for big competitions, you share a great anecdote in in your book, Peak, which shameless promotion, there it is. (laughs) And uh, I can thank our our mutual friend, Fergus Conley, for introducing both us as friends and also with the book. Um, You mentioned in the, I think it was the British Open, that a certain golfer 
looks behind them on the leaderboard coming into the final day, coming into Sunday, and sees Tiger and Rory McIlroy and pretty much every big golfer you could name from the last 10, 15 years. Now, a lot of people are going to think, oh, holy crap, <laughs> and panic. But you mentioned this example of the red dot. Can you recall that and maybe share, share for people that haven't read your book what that is? In terms of yeah, focus well, I, ma- I imagine uh, Jim's got some great strategies here, but this one really was, as someone who played a lot of golf many years ago, it was just a tremendous insight of, you know, Oosthuizen, Louis Oosthuizen is the golfer, and this is leading up, this is years ago, leading up to the British Open. He'd been in really great form. I mean, you know, just striping the ball and putting well. And uh, obviously, as you guys know, golf's a funny sport that you can have everything running, but just the wrong thought in one blink of an eye and you could make a bad swing, double bogey or miss a putt and the whole four days of competition sort of gone down the drain. And he was struggling to actually, you know, get to the finish line on the last day. He was always up the leaderboard near the top and just couldn't get the job done. And um, his sports psych had mentioned, you know, drawing a red spot on his golf glove. So when he was taking his grip and looking down at that ball, which is always the time I'm sure people listening in can appreciate, you know, you look at the water, which of course, if you look there, it's going to go there or you look out of bounds because there's some danger up by the green. And he was told, you know, look at that spot on your golf glove. And just, that's all you're thinking about. And it was amazing to see. I mean, he was only up by maybe a few shots in the last day and he ended up winning by, I think it was seven. You know, he set the record against this leaderboard of just, you know, Hall of Fame golfers. And it was an absolute clinic in ball striking. And it was amazing how, and it, you know, for the rest of us, it's amazing how if you could, if we could, yeah, just get our mindsets right and really narrow that, that focus down. It's amazing how the outcomes just start to take care of themselves rather than, you know, thinking, how am I going to get this ball in the green or, or whatever it might be? So that was, that was a pretty tremendous uh, story for sure. No, I love yeah, that. It, yeah. It's fascinating because we, you know, in practice, we need to be really left brain thinking in terms of, um, you know, analyzing and judging and, and, you know, maybe even criticizing a little bit in terms of making sure we're doing the right things. And then when it's time to perform, we need to be more right brained in terms of sensing and reacting and looking Mm -hmm. and doing and, you know, almost going unconscious a little bit. And uh, so there's fun little triggers to help with that. So I I love the dot. Um, I also like, I recommend uh, drawing a little Z on the glove or even on the golf ball. And and that could stand for zero thoughts about the past, zero thoughts about the future. It's all about this moment. And so uh, mixing that up uh, keeps things fun and fresh and uh, reminds the athletes to, you know, that peak performance occurs in the present moment, not in the past or in the future. So, uh, yeah, I love those little things that could really make a big difference when, you know, there's so much, it seems like there's so much pressure on us um, that, you know, it could help us keep things simple and in routine in order to let all that good talent out. Yeah, Mark, building on that, you talk about when when we can become over-emotional in a scenario, even if we felt calm leading up to it, there, there can just be like a trigger point or something that sets us off. And obviously, the body is hardwired to to perpetuate us as an organism and perpetuate the species, right? So we're, going, we're hardwired to be a little bit negative, a little bit hyper-aware sometimes, a little bit over-cautious. Um, but you, but you talk about this this concept of when the amygdala gets hijacked, and then maybe how we can counter that so that cooler heads can prevail. Can you can you dive into that section of the book a little bit? It's interesting how emotion can be such a you know galvanizes us in so many ways and um, can propel us. And it's interesting because of, 
one of the performance coaches at Canada Basketball on the women's side, Bryce Tully, is talking a lot about recently uh, with our group around this idea of you know mood driving action, and then which then drives the identity. This idea of okay, I'm feeling great. I trained today. All right, I feel I feel like a winner, and how it seems like a natural progression, but what happens when we don't feel so good or in the story, which I, I write about in the book, which was Zinedine Zidane's headbutt in the world cup. When you thought we're in an extra time here, it's the, the, the whole tournament's on the line. How could you do something that would get you kicked out of the game and, you know, potentially obviously uh, lose the game for France. And so, and, and these are the things that really fascinate me is this, it's again, simple, but it's, it's not easy to implement. And it's not even easy to notice this idea of turning it on its head to start with the identity of I'm the type of person who, or, and obviously it's not lost on me that I'm, I'm speaking to this while, you know, with, with Jim here, but, uh, but starting with identity and then from there moving to the action and then, you know, the feeling. And so the whole thing gets flipped on its head. And I think no matter, you know, whether it's athletes, clients, executives, that idea of putting identity first is always one of those moments where when you look at the people in the crowd, no matter who it is, there's, you can see the light bulbs kind of going off that we're not, they're not spending enough time starting at that point and really um, identifying that, that, you know, who they are, or what that identity really is. That, that is so important what you just uh, hit on there in terms of, you know, the, the two most important words I think for any performer are I am. So I am the type of player that does this, or I am the type of person that does that. And when you do that well, what, so I'm the type of player that underreacts rather than overreacts when things aren't going my way. Well, when you do a good job with that, reinforce your sense of self. So uh, that's like me to do that. That's what I do. That's what I'm going to keep doing. I always do that. And then when you get off track a little bit, instead of beating yourself up, which we tend to do, um, you know, get involved in a lot of self-abuse, is that's not like me. Uh, you know, I'm normally the type of player that does this or that. So I just need to get back to being myself. That is so helpful to do that. Um, uh, so that, you know, again, you know, it's terms, it, it, it relates a little bit to cognitive dissonance in the sense that you know, if we see ourselves a certain way, we don't want to act in a different way. We don't like that incongruity. And then also mm -hmm. it relates to uh, self-fulfilling prophecies. If we see ourselves, I'm the kind of guy that always start, you know, starts fast and finishes strong, we're more likely to perform that way. And so it's a real simple idea that, that we're talking about here. But, you know, I think one tip for all listeners is just write down 10 IMs that are sort of these positive statements, uh, affirmations that you want, um, how you want to see yourself as a performer, as a person. Um, and then repeat those over and over and over again until almost your mind repeats them back to you. Yeah, yeah I imagine you must see that, Jim. Sorry to jump in again here, Phil. But with these young performers that we have that get up to the upper level ranks, and we talk sport and athletics and then that basketball in this case, it's really the first time that they hit this barrier where now they're not the best player. They're at the end of the bench. And the negative talk is can be pretty vicious, right? Yeah, negative talk and self-doubt on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you know, dealing with fear and nerves and, you know, worries and concerns. And so um, what is amazing at, at the highest level, sometimes I'm absolutely, I'm sure you are, and I know, Phil, you know, we've worked with some pretty amazing uh, athletes and, and interviewed some pretty amazing performers. 
they never really needed to develop a lot of these skills because they were so talented. And then, like you said, at a certain level, they get to a point where, or even a certain age, maybe they get to a certain point where I can't just rely on my physical talent. Um, and so I need to work on my nutrition. I need to work on my mindset and maybe even make that the strongest part of my game at this point. And so it is really amazing that a lot of times performers, you know, will be at the Olympic trials or the Olympic games and not have go-to strategies in terms of dealing with mistakes or how to keep their cool when the heat is on, you know, those kind of things. Um, and, you know, with Zidane, that's just a perfect example of he let something, you know, we're talking about kind of getting this performance bubble. He let something negative get inside his performance bubble. And, uh, you know, what the guy said about his family or all that kind of stuff was, you know, out of bounds, but they're just words at the end of the day, you know, easy for me to say, but they're just words at the end of the day. And if he had stayed in his performance bubble and laughed at that and said, look, this guy can't beat me with his skills. He's trying to beat me with his words. This is actually a good thing going on right now. Um, that could have been the difference and probably would have been the difference between winning or losing the World Cup. I mean, that's how important this is. Yeah. And I mean, you even see it in the NBA because I love Draymond Green. And part of his I am is I am a protector of my teammates. I am somebody that does not back down from anybody but we, we saw what happened with LeBron <laughs> with the kick or attempted kick and then the smack talk. And that, you know, I wouldn't say it cost the, the Warriors that series because there were a lot of factors there. But it's arguable if he had not been suspended for the next game. And obviously LeBron had the, the chase down block game, which was part of a, you know, a, an amazing series that he had. Kind of the opposite to when, you know, he melted down a bit against the Mavericks some years previously. But similar thing like the entire NBA championship pivoted on one moment um Jim for any player or individual listening that either comes from a background where they couldn't back down because they came from a tough area and that was a sign of weakness or that's just part of their identity I am tough I don't take crap from anyone how can somebody still live that out and affirm that without crossing into that you know <laughs> event or flashpoint that can jeopardize either a situation in life a relationship or a game or a situation in the business world where where can that balance be found for that person that wants to be tough wants to be rugged but yet they still have to be they still have to play by the rules of whatever game they're they're involved in yeah that's a that's such an important point because we we do need to and especially in the work that i do um understand the background um because you know if you're like you know, put up with certain things when you were younger, you know, maybe at school or on the street, um, you needed to back it up. <laughs> you know, you needed to uh, stand your ground. You needed to assert yourself. Um, and so understanding that history is important and understanding your own buttons and triggers is really important. But at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, um, you know, what does my team need from me today? And, um, and then also you need to ask yourself, you know, how do I, you know, who do I want to be? That's why values are so important. Who do I want to be? And if someone is, you know, you know, with the trash talk and, and all that kind of stuff, again, um, that's a reflection on them, uh, not on you. And so not to take it maybe as personal. And I think a big part of this is pre, you know, having pre-game or pre-performance commitments that, you know what, Anything that happens out there today, I'm going to overreact. I mean, I'm going to underreact um, because no one ever says after a game or after a performance, I wish I had overreacted. 
So it's, you know, beforehand, it's, you know, whatever pops up, um, you know, uh, uh, it's just kind of like an ant at a picnic. I'm not going to let it ruin the picnic. You know, it's just a small thing and I'm not going to make it bigger. Um, and that takes some self-talk and some, you know, and, and some, you know, pre-decisions before you play. But I think that's a big thing. Usually when we're in the moment, our, you know, everything's kind of heightened a little bit, our emotions are heightened. And so there's this tendency to overreact to bad calls, but, you know, and, and what we're really doing is we're letting externals and non-controllables dictate our mindset. And so are you going to be in charge of the game or is the game going to be in charge of you? And so I think that understanding is really important. That wisdom is really important. Uh, doesn't mean we have to be or we always will be perfect at it, but having some sort of game mental game plan going in, I think is important. Um, and then again, how do you want to look at, you know, at yourself and when you look in the mirror, you know, what do you want to be proud of? And, and I think we get too pulled into, too often pulled into things that aren't important you yeah, know, in terms of that. what other people say or do. That's really solid. Um, Mark, I'm glad you mentioned the word wisdom because there's a bit at the end of the book that's really cool that um, you've mentioned to me before, kind of this di the difference between, you know, knowledge, wisdom, and intelligence. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I found it a fascinating topic just being in clinical practice of why don't people just do the right thing? Like if we know that smoking is bad for you, why don't they just stop smoking? Or when the doctor tells the hypertensive guy or gal in her mid forties or fifties, who's got the busy job, Hey, you need to drink a little less or change your diet. Why don't they just do it? Cause the science is there. We know the, um, and so, I mean, this is more to do with, with interpersonal conflict and some really interesting research by a fellow named Igor Grossman at university of Waterloo. And the idea that even our socioeconomic status was influencing this wisdom level that people who were actually at a lower status had to, because from an evolutionary standpoint is the thinking, you know, the environments are much more threatening. We've got to be a little bit more aware of our environments and be able to, you know, partner up or use the people around us to help us out. And, you know, for me, it just gets back to the idea of, again, for a lot of the clients, we just keep telling people what we should, they should be doing. And if you think of a, you know, doctors will often say to me, well, I just don't know why my client can't, can't do it. You know, what's they, they messed up the plan here. You know, it's, we're putting the onus, the blame on the patient. It's almost like putting the blame on the athlete. Whereas if we turn this around and we say, well, as the coach, why can't I express myself better? Why can't I better connect with this person to be able to convey the message? And, you know, whether it's athletes or, or busy people in midlife, it's what, what's the important thing. It comes back to, as Jim mentioned, the values. If we can start to figure out where their values are at, we can start to tie then, you know, the strategy we want to their values. And all of a sudden, you know, the reason why the doctor, the practitioner wants them to change, it might be different than the reason that aligns to their values, but at the end of the day, we're going to end up in the same place. And so I think that's sometimes, you know, the coaching part of this really fascinates me of even in, again, medicine, we need to be better coaches because at the end of the day, most of the chronic conditions all revolve around lifestyle change. And so if we can't better connect with people, it's difficult, especially in a medical visit that's 15 minutes long to be able to get to know somebody and, and do that. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's such a powerful tool because with some small changes, you know, I see it all the time in clinic. We've got clients with blood pressure's a little high, blood sugar's a little high, holding on to a little bit too much weight. And we, 
you know, they're not bad enough to require medications. And so we just push it down the road. But, you know, these are all the lights in the dashboard of your car saying to change the oil or check the engine. And if we keep ignoring these things long enough, it does lead to some, you know, some big problems. And so uh, over the years, I've been amazed at how, particularly with men's health, men will often think they need to transform their whole regime, which is one of the reasons why they don't tend to go to their doctor regular enough. But once they realize that you can make a small change and actually get a pretty big, you know, result from it, rather than having to completely change what you're doing, you know, it's, it's an eye opener. And then all of a sudden you can, you know, between the values and between building that kind of buy-in of, Hey, let's make some small changes and let's see actually what kind of an outcome we can get. And, you know, we've talked about some of those strategies, just getting your breakfast, right. Just cleaning up at the end of the day to get rid of those mindless snacks five nights a week just hitting your daily protein and then filling up the rest of your plate. These are all really doable things and they actually make some, some pretty meaningful changes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's so important because uh, when you think about it, you know, if you ask people, what are your goals? Everyone could say, you know, I want to lose weight. I want to get better shape. Uh, The challenge with goals is that they live in the future where value, you know, the importance of values is they, they live in the present moment. And so if your values are fitness, health, you know, mental health, physical health, family, you know, work, you know, your craft, those kind of things, uh, uh, service, um, community, those, you know, if those are your values, then what you do is you say, okay, these are my hierarchy of values. And then, and then what you do is you look at your, okay, what are my behaviors over the past two or three weeks? Well, I'm, you know, drinking too much alcohol or I'm doing this or that. Wait a minute here. So you're actually, saying these are your values, but your values, actually alcohol is, is a value. Yes, yeah. And then that really Obviously. hits them like, man, I'm putting alcohol above all these other things because yeah. it's affecting negatively all these other things. So that gets to that cognitive dissonance. I don't want to look at alcohol or whatever as more valuable than my family or my health or these other things. That really is a powerful kind of look in the mirror moment where it's like, man, I say I want this, but I'm doing that. Uh, I'm going to change that. Whereas goals, it's easy to, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll accomplish next, those next goals month. tomorrow or next <laughs> month. And then the thing is too, is that could definitely lead to inconsistent effort because if we're, if imagine if we reach our goal, then we, you know, kind of let our foot off the gas. Or if we feel like, man, I said I was going to lose five pounds or train for a marathon or whatever. And just because your schedule or whatever happens, it doesn't look possible. Then we just give up entirely. So that's where I think having goals and values is important, but keeping your values greater than your goals, I think will help you to achieve your goals paradoxically. And and I would add a third one there, Jim, of the people who reach their goals. I often say in a weight loss term, well, congratulations, you made it to the weight you want tomorrow morning. You've still got to get up and do something. Yeah. So to your point, if you don't have those values, then all of a sudden you slide back as well because you think, Oh, I made it. uh," So I found that to be really interesting. We've got to still, without those values, people then still slide back to their old patterns. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. What is it fills up in the mountains of Colorado? What is the saying? When you climb one mountain, you're actually at the bottom of the next mountain. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, like it's, or, or yeah, exactly. And so um, that's a challenge is keeping it going. And, and um, you know, I love in baseball, there's 162 games in 180 days in major league baseball. And, you know, a lot of it's, it's a lot of it is stay the course. So with all the things that we're talking about today, it's stay the course because, mm-hmm. you know, we've all heard a million times it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. I, I love in the course of looking at it as a long game that Mark, you talk about 
the importance of self-compassion in the the book, which I'm notoriously bad at. So, you know, you make a mistake or you make a continued series of mistakes, or as Jim says, you kind of almost do an evaluation on on your behavior and find, okay, well, these things aren't lining up with what I say I value or my tenets or my principles. And then we just beat ourselves into dust, right, (laughs) over that, which then actually gets us further from our values and actually achieving the goals, whether short-term or long-term. So, can you talk a little bit about how you address that topic of self-compassion, even for hard drivers, type A people, top performers that are used to holding themselves to a ruthlessly high standard and you know wanna wanna continue doing this, but yet maybe they're they're almost putting too much of a burden of perfection on themselves sometimes. Yeah, I mean again, this idea of environment. I mean, growing up at a time when Bobby Knight was a famous basketball coach and you know. I loved my basketball coaches in high school, but that was definitely the, you know, it was a lot of hard talk and, you know, a lot, you sort of, if you, if you didn't play well, then that was how you dealt with it. You just beat yourself up. And I think people of that generation or before, it's amazing how those just become subconsciously embedded, right? We're not even aware of the fact that we're doing it unless somebody tells us to do a, an activity where you have to write something out or positive self-talk or whatnot. And so, I think that becomes a it becomes a huge problem where I notice it is that you know when it comes to health or weight loss the human side of people come out and so it doesn't matter if they're a surgeon the partner of the biggest law firm or whoever all these skills that they bring to their job almost go out the window when it comes to the rationality of losing weight because they want to get there as fast as they can um the negative self-talk from 20, 30, 40 years ago and things that happened in their past comes bubbling up. And so, you know, there's, uh, and over the years you realize that we can't just push through, you know, we've got to, and this is where having a, being exposed to a lot of great mental performance coaches over the year, I've been blown away. And of course, you know, uh, family psychologists as well, but helping people deal with this aspect of it actually it's amazing how it raises the playing field you know all of a sudden it makes it a lot easier to to start building some of those habits or to be executing something because you know as jim said this idea of goals is always in the future and you can see when people keep thinking in the future anxieties just start to build up and again i come back to weight loss because that's often what people are coming in for and if you're struggling with a metabolic condition or you know, type two diabetes, hypertension, typically that's going to improve things, but people get so fixated on the number on the scale, then all of the decisions are acute based off of that, right? They want to just get that number down as quick as they can. And or if you know, it's you what's or if it's what's on their bike or split yeah, times no, in their exactly, run, exactly. whatever their Strava split time is meant to be, then it, <laughs> it just becomes all everything becomes that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's bad data. I mean, if you work with a fighter or a boxer you can take 10 12 14 pounds off them in 24 hours and none of that's body fat and so if you're gonna put all of your emphasis on a metric we better make sure it's giving us clear data and so you know this idea of self-compassion it is different for a lot of people you know my, my generation and older because it's not something that we were taught in school it's not something our coaches gave us and now we're being exposed to more of these things. And when I make, you know, as part of our programs, we make clients go through some of these exercises and it's amazing. It's oftentimes the first time that it actually sat down to do some of these things and it does open up a lot of potential. And I think 
you know, again, going back to a lot of the high achievers, oftentimes we're not going to realize that these things are running in the background and contributing to a lot of this, the challenges. And so, yeah, I think self-compassion is a, is a really big one, that idea that, hey, I'm struggling with this, but other people are struggling as well. You know, and then to Jim's point, if we can come back to that identity of the person you want to be, it's it's amazing how that can pull people back up versus what you can see with either athletes or the population. If they just decide to quit and they just, I don't want to do this anymore. They just run from the from the adversity, unfortunately. Yeah, Jim, you, you've talked about that that's, or used that same term that Mark just did about these tapes that play in our head, whether sometimes somewhat consciously, but a lot of time it's the background hiss, you know, like on a bad connection um, or a bad staticky phone line maybe or a Zoom call perhaps if there's anything in the background on our conversation, you're thinking what's going on here? But it's just that 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 static, that interference. What, what do you have to say about, you know, how high performers can learn to maybe put – Take out that old tape for those of us that remember the old Sony Walkmans. <laughs> All three of us, right? Maybe not some younger listeners, but uh, or change the change the Spotify playlist, maybe, um, so that it, it kind of sets us up for success rather than holding us back and pulling us down into these old thinking traps. Yeah, we we all have those tapes playing, and most of it is you know not very helpful. And it's interesting, you know, in terms of nutrition, I remember one time talking with, um, when I was at Arizona State University, talking with the sports dietitian, and, and we're talking about, you know, most of us grew up hearing things like, don't waste your food, you know, don't let the food on your plate go to waste. And it was really interesting. I was mentioning that I said, you know, like a lot of people think like, you know, if I have a bunch of food on my plate, if I don't eat it, I'm wasting it. And she said, well, it's just as much of a waste if you eat something when you're not hungry. And, you know, I never really, you know, if you eat it, it's still kind of a waste if your body doesn't need it or, you know, you're just mm -hmm. overfueling uh, versus throwing it away or, you know, saving it for later. So, um, you know, that's just an example of how you could start thinking about, you know, what am I telling myself here and what can I tell myself that might be more helpful? Um, but yeah, the, the, the self-compassion is so important because no one gets to, you know, become a high performer by, you know, hey, that, that workout was okay, good enough, you know, or, um, yeah, you, you missed the game winning shot, that's fine. You know, like, you know, we're usually like, that's unacceptable, that stops now, um, you know, I won't be denied. And so we're so hard on ourselves to get us to where we want to go. But that ends up, you know, getting to a certain point where there's definitely diminishing returns on that. And then also it starts to really backfire. Um, and so that part about like, you know, Hey, it's okay to ask for help, you know, is one sort of self-compassion, like Phil and I, you know, like the whole idea of, you know, seeking mental health services is not being in trouble. Uh, it's just being in need or, um, you know, it's a sign of strength or courage to ask for support, um, instead of feeling like you have to do everything on your own. But then also when you don't play well, it's like, okay, what did I do well? Let's, you know, let's find the gold in the mud and then, um, and then, you know, get excited about my next opportunity. Now I'm a better player, but yeah, most of us are way too hard on ourselves than not hard enough. And, you know, I love the saying that, you know, life will beat you up all by itself. Why are you helping it? So, you know, kind of the, the cliche that, you know, that, that you hear in counseling a lot, and I use this too for myself and others is, you know, uh, or it could even be a good exercise is after you don't do something well, uh, maybe you said, you know, I'm going to really stick to my nutrition plan. 
write down all the thoughts that you had after you messed up, so to speak. And, you know, it's, it's really powerful to look at that, you know, man, are those thoughts, you, you, this, you, that, why the heck, you know, are those really that helpful to me? And then would I ever in a million years say that to anyone else? So we all have this double standard that of course, that's not going to help a really close friend. If I said that to them or my wife or husband or whatever, that's going to, you know, that's going to make them feel terrible. It's going to make them feel shame and guilt and keep them stuck. But yet, so why are we doing that to ourselves? So being aware of that double standard and, you know, when we need to give ourselves a pat on the back or, or when we, you know, maybe occasionally need to give ourselves a kick in the seat, you know, to get going. But um, most of us, if not almost all of us benefit from positive reinforcement. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mark, with Jim talking about kind of that mental health awareness there and obviously, players like Kevin Love and, you know, athletes like Serena Williams and and obviously with, with what happened with Simone Biles at, at the last Summer Olympics, kind of bringing, shining a light on the importance of this. How have you seen in the past few years maybe some steps in the right direction around elite performers and mental health? Yeah, I mean, definitely quite a few. And, and even just to dovetail off what Jim was saying there, that idea of patting people on the back, it is amazing how, again, even if they're, executives high performers that idea of telling someone hey great great work with making that change you know you've really done a good job there it's you can tell all the negative self-talk because just that little compliment or reassurance really propels them which i find fascinating because it really isn't that big of compliment really um but it really gets people going and so from a mental health standpoint just the awareness is tremendous i mean what we couldn't do 20 years ago or was seen as really crossing a quite a big gap, you know, these days is, is commonplace. And I think one of the big things when we look at even overtraining in athletes, one of the common symptoms is low mood, right? Low libido, low mood. And we're talking athletes now, but when we look at the general population as well, of people who are struggling with lower mood or lower libido or feeling burnt out, I mean, it's the equivalent of an athlete overtraining, but it's obviously not from the training. It's from the life load, right? It's the work, working all those hours and not sleeping enough. And from the athletic standpoint, we, we think it's just obvious. Oh, it's overtraining. It's very straightforward, but we don't necessarily assign that to the life load, to the general population person. And so I think that's one, when we do talk about mental health, people struggling, and I see this more so in, in, in men because they're a lot less likely to admit it or to seek help and you know they don't tend to go to their doctor as regularly as women do and so there's less of an opportunity to mention it and i was amazed uh having an interview with uh, dr drew ramsey psychiatrist talking about how in men that sort of anger or angst is more of the you know this the red flag or the symptom of having that lower mood versus some of the classic symptoms we think about of just being you know, sad or, or these types of things. And so I think with athletes, it's been really refreshing because we know all these inputs, you know, the lack of sleep, the heavy training, the nutrition, and now being exposed to social media and the world's opinions. You know, when we see documentaries about Marty Fish, or you mentioned Kevin Love and people like DeMar DeRozan. You know, I think it's, it really humanizes these elite athletes, which I think is great for for everybody in particular young athletes, because it shows them that these are people too, and they've got struggles and challenges. And, and as you guys alluded to, Jim said there, it's, it's, you know, it's, it shows a sign of strength to say, Hey, I need some more. So I need some support here, some skills. And, you know, just to 
dovetail a little bit on the nutrition side, you know, when we see people with higher blood sugars, you know, this is actually in higher insulin levels, which is the blood sugar hormone. Look at a lot of the Scandinavian studies. That's a really strong predictor of lower mood and depression. And so when we have people who struggle with poor metabolic health, so if you've got a lot of weight around the midsection, more visceral adiposity, that means we're going to have a lot more inflammation as well. And that combination of higher blood sugars, higher systemic inflammation from that, you know, that visceral adiposity creates more oxidative stress. That's a real, you know, igniter of, of an, an enhancer of lower mood and struggling with that. So I think that's something that we see now, even in the medical setting of addressing some of those things of saying, you know, getting your blood sugars and losing weight isn't the reason we're struggling with perhaps lower mood or mental health, but it's going to raise the playing field if we improve those, or if we, if we build a bit more cardiovascular fitness, because we know exercise is a tremendous support to, to better mood. You know, where is this, this climb, this individual? So I think that's been great to be able to see that, you know, that progression over time. And, you know, with athletes today, it's, it's, it's great that it's just an easy conversation, well, easier conversation, let's call it. Yeah, definitely. Are there any other aspects that you've added to your own consulting services over the past year or two that you have, as you said earlier, might seem like small things, but have actually provided some pretty big wins for those clients? When it comes to things like mood and anxiety? Yeah, or just in general. Yeah, just anything you've you've added to your programming that, that maybe you thought, well, I, I think this will work, this will help people, whether it's, as you say, that kind of mid-career executive and, and, and busy parent, or it's working with athletes, um, maybe just the way that you've kind of added to something and or took a flyer on adding an element to your programming and, and, and it's turned up to be a big win. Well, I mean, a couple of things come to mind here. And the first, I'm a big coffee lover. And the good news for people is that half of the antioxidants that we get 50% in the diet come from coffee and tea. So that's tremendous. But like everything in life, you know, it's a, the dose makes the poison. And if we, it's easy to start to consume too much caffeine. And once we get above six milligrams per kilogram body weight per day, which is, you know, when you get to three or four cups, you're sort of pushing towards that edge you're going to start to get more anxiety type symptoms and whether you feel it or not, it's going to start to interrupt with the quality of one's sleep. And so when we look at people who are struggling with the burnt out or the low mood or the low libido, the common pattern I see in practice is the heavy caffeinating in the day to get going and get the energy and then taking the edge off with a couple of drinks at night, which we know interferes with your REM sleep and you don't recover as well and getting stuck on that loop is definitely one that, that contributes to that bit of a downward spiral there. And, and, you know, throughout the pandemic, I think it's been fascinating with just, you know, we do remote consults previously, but people always wanted to be face to face and even companies having talks, but from a nutrition standpoint, having more touch points is the key, right? But nutrition's challenging because when you come into the office, I'm not, you know, it's not a massage. I'm, you're not going for personal training. There's no physical touch. So it becomes a, you know, more difficult to get people to come in. And so it's been nice to see people buying into more of the remote support because it's the smaller touch points more frequently over time that can help to develop some of these things. And I'm sure it might be similar on the, on the mindset standpoint of if we can just, you know, be with people a little longer, because most of the time when they, when they think they're really off piste, they're only five or 10 degrees off, but it's, it's knowing which five or 10 degrees that is. And so, you know, those are probably two of the bigger things that have come up over the last, uh, you know, year and a half with COVID. 
No, that's great. Yeah, what do you say, Jim, about if somebody was, what was the analogy about the, the plane pilot, if they were one degree off in their flight plan, like instead of ending up here, they'd end up there? Yeah, I don't know if this is, well, we, we did here when we were in Detroit, we, uh, Phil and I did a workshop um, for Honey Baked uh, Hockey Club and um, went out to Detroit and there was actually a pilot, Phil and I were talking about this example and there was a pilot said, yeah, I think that's actually true. But, um, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's a great visual in terms of, you know, if you're flying from LA to Hawaii, but you're one degree off course, you're going to end up in Hong Kong. And so that small change over time can make a massive difference. And so um, it's a good reminder that small changes, it, uh, you know, those small victories really do add up. Uh, and so not to negate those um, and just to, again, stay the course with those. Um, I, I do have a question, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, in, in terms of the, you know, a journey like that, or, you know, in terms of uh, nutrition or a journey in terms of career where Phil and I are all about on this podcast, you know, the idea of living a gold medal life. And, um, you know, I love the expression that a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. And that if you want to live a gold medal life, you got to take some risks, you know, you can't, um, you know, just stay in your room all day. And so was that a big risk for you? Because I think my understanding is that you were more of a strength and conditioning coach at first. And then you, and then now you're, you know, one of the top, nutritionists, uh, sports nutritionists, um, you know, on the planet. So how did that happen? And was that a big risk for you? Or is that just more of a natural progression because you were doing that a little bit anyway? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, having started out in strength and conditioning, I was working with people and I was actually working in, in central London. And again, this idea was how do we help people out? And all of a sudden they're eating different and moving and, and their health is getting better. And you know, I did a degree and rather than going into regular medicine, I went into naturopathic medicine and this is where right. it was, uh, you know, you're doing all the studying and, and, and this long curriculum and, you know, how do we help people out? And you learn different tools and medications and whatnot. But at the end of the day, when you're dealing with chronic conditions, you always end up back in the same place. You know, what are you going to eat? How are you going to move the lifestyle factors? And so, you know, for me, I find it fascinating with even the technology today it provides us with a lot of insights, but we still get back to these sort of foundational pieces. And so I, I think, you know, to answer your question there about that sort of journey of, of, you know, it's amazing now the talks I do for, for doctors around nutrition and exercise and lifestyle I'll actually be in, in New York in February, giving a talk. And again, when I was finishing my studies in university, I would go to these, you know, um, visits with the docs and, and and shadow them and they were saying well nutrition and exercise can't really do that much for x condition or y condition mm -hmm. and so it's been great to see that sort of progression over time of, of realizing hey we can really you know high blood pressure high blood sugars all these conditions low mood all these chronic lifestyle conditions um, can definitely be impacted and so i'd say that's definitely the one of kind of <laughs> keeping steady on that course of just thinking these these are these are real pillars of just human health and therefore they have to be supportive of improving these chronic conditions. Cause really at the, at the, at the root of it, it's just a person who's, who's, who's unhealthy. And then therefore these, these conditions are just the smoke rather than the root cause. 
Yeah, I love that. He, too often we I, I use the example or the analogy of a, a spider versus the spider web. So I, I love the, the the smoke one too. In terms of you know we we're, we're treating the symptoms instead of the the root cause or the you know and and focusing on the main thing. And so uh, that is key. Uh, if your flight from London to New York is one degree off, where are you going to end up? <laughs> That's going to be interesting. You might end up in Colorado or Oregon to see us. Oh, yeah, the northern somewhere in northern Canada. I think <laughs> right. you might end up in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, Mark, with, with, you know, so much potential for, for your craft now, um, how do you balance time between being a busy father, particularly with your wife, you know, with the Achilles tear and, and husband too. And um, that aside, just, you know, your work with Team Canada, you mentioned, you know, speaking with doctors, um, individual consulting, whether it be athletes or general population, you know, team consults, this kind of thing. There's a lot going on. How do you how do you take care of yourself? How do you keep all the plates uh, spinning without any drop into the floor? Yeah, I mean, they definitely a few of them are hit hit the floor. You know, you got to just be okay with a few plates breaking. I think, uh, you know, part of it's just kicking enough cans down the road to keep projects and things moving in the right direction because there's only so much time in the day. And and the other part I think is is leaning into a lot of the the, the items that. Jim's been talking about, which is leaning more back on this mindset pieces and taking some moments to kind of ask ourselves, you know, what are, what are the values? Where, you know, what, what is the North star here? Because it's, it's great to be busy in all these areas, but you know, what's really driving things. And so, you know, like a lot of busy people, I think you realize once you have small children that the lack of sleep and everything else makes things a lot bigger challenge. And so you've got to start, you know, prioritizing, as best you can to sleep or, you know, I, I love what Jim said there, which I reinforced with a lot of clients was this idea of the night before, how are we planning that next day? How are we plan that? How are we mapping out that week? Because then we're, you know, it's much easier when we've got a, a roadmap than reacting in the moment. Cause then we fall back into that sort of, you know, feeling and then action mode. So, you know, I try to, for me, when the sleep gets derailed and I, I gotta say, I'm more used to, even though six hours is technically not enough, I've gotten more used to that over the years, but where I can find spots for naps, I was never a napper. Actually, one of my, my senior year, a friend of mine told me to take a nap before our first home basketball game. And I decided to do it. And I woke up with the biggest sleep inertia you've ever felt. I didn't know what day it was or where I was. And after that day, I decided no more naps for me, but uh, having talked to a lot of the sleep researchers, you know, the art of taking that 20 or 30 minute short nap or trying to get, you know, 90 minutes uh, chunks on the weekend. It's amazing how that can really start to stack up some wins on the, on the energy front. And then it makes, once you've got a little bit better recovery, it makes all the movement or exercise or, or you know, work decisions a lot easier after that. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned, you know, peak being kind of focused on peak performance, even though we've talked about a lot of takeaways for for anyone who just wants to perform better in every area of life are you at work on a on, a, on another book project right now or is that a dangerous question to ask <laughs> yes it's a dangerous question for my wife probably she's but well um, indeed yeah we know how that the, is jim <laughs> there's another 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 project in the works on the, on the writing front uh it's a little ways out now but it's uh yeah it's gonna it's, i'm excited it's got a lot of mindset embedded in with the nutrition and so um yeah i won't, I won't say too much about it to not overcommit myself here but it's uh hopefully it's it's gonna work out 
No, oh, that's great. Well, you've been so generous with your time today, and we know it's uh, <laughs> 10.30-ish your time, so we don't want to take up any more of your evening. But where can people um, keep up with you? Where can they find the book? Where are you uh, Where are you posting things most often? Yeah, well, listen, guys, I appreciate you inviting me on. This was, this is tremendous. And uh, I've got a unique last name, so I'm pretty easy to find. If you just look up at Dr. Bubs on any of the socials, you'll find me. B-U-B-B-S and the website is uh, drbubs.com and you can find things on that midlife tips and simple heuristics, you know, but the peak 40, or you can go drbubs.com forward slash athletes and get more of the, the deeper dive on the athlete side there. Happy well, to answer questions as well. Terrific. Well, you, as always, you've been very generous with your time and your insights and we, we sure appreciate you both as a guest and a friend. So thanks for all you do for the, for the community and, um, yeah, just again, how available and open you are when when we need to pick your brain. No worries. Well, next time let's do it in Colorado so we can get some uh, some turns in. Hey, there we go. There we go. Good idea. Well, thank you, Mark. Have a great Thanks, rest Mark. of the evening. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.